Welcome, welcome, and welcome again. This is the Product Uncensored show with your host, Colin Pell. There's nobody else here, so obviously that's me. And this is episode 10, and uh, this is really, really a milestone for me personally. I never thought I'll be doing this, let alone be doing this for 10 episodes. So thank you so much, everyone, for your support, for your feedback, and even your constructive uh, criticism. It has really helped to make this show that much better. Please continue to support um, by clicking on the subscribe button below. Also click on the bell that's next to the subscribe button so that you'll be notified immediately uh, when our new episode drops. We're also on all major podcasting platforms such as Anchor, Spotify, Google, and Apple. So please do follow us there as well. And I also want to take this time to thank everyone who's been following me on LinkedIn and giving suggestions for guests on the show. Our guest today is actually uh, one of the suggestions uh, from one of our listeners. So thank you for that. And of course, this being the Product Uncensored show, every episode is special. For a start, check out my background. Um, I decided to do something different. You know, it's a milestone uh, episode. So I thought I'll freshen it up a little bit. Let me know your comments um, and, and yeah, whether you like it or not. Okay, that is enough small talk and introduction. I want to go straight into this. We have a very special guest once again, our first guest who is based in Dubai. And yes, I know you're going to give me brick bats because the show is supposed to be leaders from Southeast Asia, but I'll tell you why this still fits within that definition. He's currently the Chief Product Officer of Talabat. Please welcome to the show, uh, Yiwei Ang. Thank you so much for having me today, Colin. It's really great to be here. Fantastic, fantastic. Um, yeah, and, and thank you so much for really being um, willing to, to you know, do all, all the things that we needed to do, um, and especially from all the way from Dubai. Um, now, before we, we, we go into all the good stuff, right? So I promise the listeners, I'll tell them why um, this is still legitly within the realms of Southeast Asia. So I'm going to start with, you know, Yiwe, where are you from originally? Yeah, originally born and bred in Malaysia. So I grew up in, uh, in KL. I, I was there for about 12 years. And then uh, my family decided to uproot and we moved all around the world, uh, Hong Kong to China. And then I did my undergrad in Canada, worked in the US. So, uh, and, and most recently, prior to Dubai, I actually lived in Singapore for the last uh, few years, uh, building a, a product organization in, in Singapore as well. So um, it, it's great to finally be back and, and virtually connected with the Southeast Asian crew. Uh, and, and it's great to be chatting product once again. Very nice. So you see, guys, um, Yiwei was definitely someone, um, when, when, I, when I got the suggestion, I knew I wanted to get on the show. And so, yeah, we, let's talk about uh, a bit of that background that you talked about, right? Because you, you are from Malaysia, but then you also studied in, in Beijing, if I, if, I remember, if I remember looking. Correct, yeah. yes. So how, how did you end up there? Because I think you alluded to it when you said your family moved around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I think, uh, you know, my family growing up, we were sort of expat kids, you know, uh, my, my dad at the time was, uh, you know, he had a, a bunch of different uh, jobs sort of around the world. So I think I've been really fortunate to, to, to be in uh, very different parts of the world in a very different era, arguably, you know, when I was in China in 04 to 08, it was prior to the Olympics. So it's very different from the China, the very tech enabled China that we know today. Uh, but it's, uh, it, it's great to see and, and experience all that. Very uh, blessed and fortunate to, to have, have been part of that. 
Okay. And you also did your undergrad in University of Toronto, is that right? Yeah, that's correct. And, and t- tell, tell us about a little bit more about how did you get into that? Because you actually studied um, industrial engineering, uh, I think majoring yeah. on human-centered design, which mm-hmm. is not something that is, well, at least in this part of the world, not that common. Mm-hmm. Um, so how did you get into that? Yeah, you know, I think, uh, so growing up, I, I always was very interested in uh, product development, specifically software engineering, right? Mm-hmm. And uh and and I applied to 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 being computer science programs pretty much in every university that I, I applied to, except for the University of Toronto, which they had this sort of general first year engineering program. And I said, okay, like let me give that a shot. And uh, in in that first year engineering program, I was introduced to the concept of human factors. So human factors is basically a, a study where it talks about humans' interactions with technology. So, for mm-hmm. example, how pilots interact with all of their different equipment and and, and how that affects decision-making and how that affects things like accidents and, and safety and, and all of that. So I got really interested uh, in that field and, and somehow stumbled into the world of human-centered design, uh, which I don't regret at all. I think it's a fantastic foundation to product development, uh, and, it, and it builds a whole new level of understanding and empathy of your users, which, which I, until today, still, still feel uh, is, is a very important part of the work that I do. Uh, so... Let's talk about that software engineering part that you said you were interested in. What what sparked that interest? Was it because of was it because of you know what your parents did, or was it influenced mm. by the people around you? Yeah, I think uh, the, I, I remember the most influential thing that happened was uh, uh, you know when I was about six or seven, uh, my uncle at the time uh, was doing engineering school. And, uh, and, and he, was, he was learning programming. I remember it was still in the terminal back in the day. And, and I remember going to his house and, and uh, he showed me how he, he dealt, developed a, 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 a sort of a GUI calculator, you know, which you can, you, can, you can press things and add things. And I was like, wow, like you can, you can, you can just do things by typing things in a notepad and, and, and some things just mysteriously show up. And I think that sparked a real interest in, in in me sort of being able to see that, wow, like you can really in, in, in the software world be able to create something from nothing. Mm. Um, and I thought that was, that was super, super cool. And, and so, you know, when I was a teenager and through high school, I, I just started building things, you know, not for anyone per se. I had just built things for myself and, and, uh, and, and ever since I got stuck into the product world and, and never left. Wow. Okay. That, that is so cool. Like, because cause I, I try to sort of contrast that with, you know, when I was growing up, you know, it was so different, right? All, all I wanted to do was, it's like, hey, computer is cool. And therefore, you know, one of the things I still remember when I was young, I was, I was telling myself, hey, I want to be a webmaster. You know, it's like, wow, it was this big thing. <laughs> then yeah. after that, you turn out, actually, the webmaster is not really that big a deal at all. So, <laughs> yeah. It's a different time, huh? I remember that. Yeah, yeah, correct. The days of the, the, the dial-up, the dial-up, you know, the all that you know, <laughs> you know getting disconnected yeah, geo, geo cities and everything yeah absolutely uh oh yeah what, what, what was the other one angel angel fire was it uh, yeah, uh one of those. Man, those 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 are different days all together okay anyway let, let's let's continue so you graduated and then you actually became a ux researcher for for ibm right mm-hmm. um yeah, yeah. so I, I mean, uh, my, my first job ever, it was actually a, a, an internship contract, a relatively long one for about a year and a half. Um, but my first job ever was as a UX researcher. 
And arguably, I think there are elements of the job that I still today I tell people is one of my favorite jobs that I've had. You know, because um, <clears throat> as a UX researcher, your your only job is to just be the loudest voice and the most accurate and and most representative voice of your customer. And I found that to be so uh, empowering. I found it really empowering because you know everyone in the organization relies on you to make some of those. Uh, analyses and, and, and inferences, which I think is really powerful. And I think that especially in really large organizations, the, the voice of the customer can sometimes be really diminished because you think about your business objectives, you think about any number of things, but you don't really empathize very, very well with, with the end user. And for a year and a half, my, my job in and out was prototyping, talking to users every day. You know, we even had a, we had a really cool, actually in, in Toronto, uh, a UX research lab with a you know with one of those uh, uh, one way mirrors where, oh. where you can do an interview and have a recording on the other side like it was Very it was a really really cool experience um, and uh, and you know uh, I thought it was just you know a really really good introduction and foundation for what I think product development is really about which is solving problems for real people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. I think you're the first person I know who's actually done the the user researcher role up to the point of that that you know the two way mirror because mm-hmm. that, that that's almost CSI like in that sense. So. <laughs> yeah, a little bit, right? Yeah, a little bit. yeah. But then, so the interesting part is because you were U, UX researcher, and then you know you went to 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 start your own uh, your own company, but then you then became a product manager, right? Person, and, yeah. Absolutely. How 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 did you or why why did, you why did that change? happen? Yeah, <clears throat> I think um, I think the biggest jump from UX to product is a really interesting one because I think that when I was a UX researcher, what I found was that my output was a report. My you know I I, I came up you know I was really close to the customer, but at the end of the day, like my my deliverable or, or what my biggest impact was is like, hey, here I'll, I'll make as much no- noise as possible and be as representative as possible about my customers, and then it sort of ended there. And, and remember, like, this is, this, is, this is quite a while ago where I don't think the design team was fully embedded within the product squads. This is quite a modern, modern concept. I think back in the day, we were still, like, talking about the discussion of, of transitioning from waterfall to agile, right? So it was mm. a slightly different world. Yeah. But what I was a bit frustrated about was, like, look, like, I, I, I'm so close to customers. I really, like, I, I, see, I see their pain, but I felt like I, I wasn't the one driving some of those decisions to, to, to make that happen. Yes. And I think that was a little bit frustrating. And so I said, okay, look, like if I have a foundation in human-centered design and human, uh, foundation research, could I take this and take this as sort of a, a key uh, foundation and, and move into product and, and, and help sort of push things over the line? And, um, and it worked. And it worked quite well. And, and, and I felt like that transition to product was actually quite natural for me. Um, and I still today, like uh, I, I really do believe that uh, people coming from the design world make really, really good product managers. I actually think so. Um, in fact, one of the one of the things that I like to talk about with with peers, um, especially with people with design backgrounds, research backgrounds, is actually how how can product management and design or you know UX and research sort of work better together. Um, I I liked what you said. You know, back when you started, it was in the day where you know research and design wasn't really embedded and to to be fair right even today i would still say that um at least in in southeast asia i I won't talk about you know the rest of the world i still think that it is still a very hand-off-ish 
kind of way of mm-hmm. doing things. And and I really think that you know having teams that have an embedded uh, or rather cumulative strength of you know product manager design research everything all in I think makes um, together with engineering of course makes it that much more um, effective. Um, yeah, so I, I think I want to pick your brain on that a little later if we have time. Um, sure, uh, absolutely, yes. Yeah, but coming back to you know when you transitioned from UX into product manager, so there was a stint in between where you were co-founder of your next career network, right? Yeah. Um, can, can can you talk a little bit about that in from the context of why why do that and then why from there yeah, go yeah, to absolutely. product management? So actually, this uh, this was an interesting one because uh, between my my IBM stint and uh, my full time role, I basically had to go back to school for one last year. I said okay, um, I think between me and a couple of friends, what we what we wanted to do is you know having worked in in bigger tech companies and coming back to the last year's school, we said there's a really opportunity for students to get exposure to to, to opportunities. And, and one one big gap that we saw, and, and this was in Canada back in the day, it's no longer the case because I think. Uh, we've really bridged the gap not not us but i think as a whole uh, the the tech ecosystem is a lot more uh uh connected but back in the day it felt like all the action was happening in the states and the valley and and there was a lot of hiring happening there but a lot of it didn't sort of trickle into other parts of the world and so as, as sort of uh students in, in in the canadian university system we said okay like is there a way a world where we start bringing some of these companies a bit closer to to, to students and help students sort of bridge the skills gap that we needed to work in some of these companies, and, and uh, so I spent about a year, year and a bit working just on that. Um, and for me, what was really cool about that was, you know, we had a team of, uh, you know, uh, thirty or forty students running this non for profit, uh, and it worked really well. I mean, we 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 had uh, thousands of, we connected thousands of students with hundreds of companies uh, in in the span of a year, and and probably uh, helped a lot of people get jobs as a result of that, and. And uh, the organization is still humming and still running today. And uh, it's really cool to see uh, how that's evolved. Very nice. Okay, so that was something that you did in your final year of school. And yeah, then yeah, were, yeah. Right, right. Okay. And then you, became, you, you joined Microsoft as the product manager, right? At that point yes. in time in Microsoft, uh, were you a single contributor, individual contributor, or were you handling yes, the team? Yes, I was. Okay. Yeah, I was. I uh the story around that is really interesting because so I I, uh, I joined Microsoft in their developer division. So this is this is one of those things where like I was a software developer a little bit when I was a teenager, but then very much swung towards the research side. So like sort of shed my my technical skin. Mm. And um, and the thing about uh, when you join a big big company, is oftentimes you don't get to choose what team you're on, right? So. You know, I, I I interview and then at the end they're like, okay, we you, you you got a role for a PM role at the developer division, and I'm like, oh no, like this is like this is the one audience that I I, <laughs> I feel like I I won't be able to build great products for. Hmm. That being said, I think it was super character building because what 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 you find out is that software developers are probably the most vocal and the most opinionated. Uh, people to build product for because they can always they they always believe and and, and and probably true they always believe that they can probably build a pro- better product than, than than you can for themselves right <laughs> so I, I I thought it was uh, for for about two and so years building building for uh, software developers was a uh, very very character building you know I really really trained your your empathy skills your ability to sort of uh, listen well and 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 deal with the, arguably a very tough crowd. 
Mm, yeah, yeah. I think it's a very interesting one because it, it would have been a very technical role as well. Um, were you was your role customer facing in that sense, or was it really just uh, to to deal with the development team? Yeah, I think uh, it was customer facing uh, to a degree. I think so for for about a year and a bit, I was building. Uh, the Microsoft Developer Network. As you guys remember, uh, back in the day, documentation was was really big. And you know, we used to, for example, even like send documentation out on CD. Yes, yes. But anyway, yes. then then transition online to this this developer network, and we were we were building that. We were building the developer community. We were building um, the the code sharing platform back in the day. Like we had our wow. own before the, the 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 glory days of GitHub. <laughs> Microsoft eventually eventually acquired, but it was before those days. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so we were building that, and we were building uh, the community for for, for .NET and, and Microsoft Stack developers. Uh, and so yeah, that was that was a lot of fun. Okay, okay. So now let let's get to the part where you land back in Southeast Asia, because I believe that after yes. that you joined Trade Gecko, right? Trade Gecko. Um, That's right. So. Uh, what, what what made you want to come back? By the way, because mm-hmm. usually most people want to stay there and you know build your career yeah. in the valley because that's where you know all all the hip and sexy stuff is happening. Um, but you you came back to to Singapore instead. In the, the... Yeah, I think it might be a this might be a, a theme that that maybe can explain why I moved to Dubai as well. But I think um, so. Besides family reasons, being a little bit closer to home. You know, having family in Singapore, having family in Malaysia. Um, the second reason is, you know, when I started visiting and coming back to Singapore for, for my holidays and meeting with founders and meeting with other product people, A, I realized, wow, like this, you know, back then, huh, this is, this is, uh, 2013, 2014. So, okay. Like we're, we're pretty far behind, mm. you know, like at, at that time I was still trying to explain what product management was all about. Right. Um, and, uh, and, and going and, and I was like, okay, like this is pretty untapped. Um, and, uh, and. One of my holidays, I, I came back and I, I started getting a little bit more uh, active in reaching out to some of the some of the founders, and I, I reached out to the founders of Trade Gecko, uh, Cameron and Bradley, who, who are still today so friends, really good friends, uh, and and we had a just a bit of a discussion around around where where they were, and that was right when uh, they were they just had raised their Series A, so arguably mm. really really early, and I felt that it was a really interesting opportunity for uh, for me to sort of take on a very different kind of role uh, in, in, in the startup scene uh, and, and be part of that growth in Singapore. Mm. Were you the first uh, product hire? Uh, one of the first. Uh, uh, one of the first, yeah. I was probably PM number two in the organization. Uh, but yeah, that, that was, that was uh, mm. early days for sure. Yeah. And you bring up a good point because you were saying that, you know, when you joined Trade Gecko, it was basically um, a startup, and I do believe that before that you were working for you know really big enterprise uh, level uh, or stage companies. So, um, how big was that transition for you uh, in terms of uh, the role and also the company culture, in from yes. a, from a product manager's perspective? You know, the funny part is, is that I felt like the transition was super easy, um, and and I say that because. Maybe maybe working in a really big company, you carry all this baggage. And you're like, ah, oh, man, I wish I didn't have to do this, and I wish I didn't have to do that. And then you go to start like, oh wow, like this is newfound freedom, you know? Like, um, and and I I thoroughly enjoyed it. I remember even like within week one or two, like, you know, I we were I I I I felt like I was I was running at a pace that I never ran at before. 
because mm. I could, because there was nothing in my way. Um, and I felt that that's to be super liberating and, and, uh, and, you know, for, uh, however long I was a caregiver for probably about two, two and a half years. Um, I felt like I, I had the room to be able to run. Uh, mm. and, and that was, that was really cool to be able to explore new roles, explore different, different aspects of a product. Um, and, uh, and I felt like it was a relatively easy transition. I think. I think the own the what what was really cool is being able to sort of bridge, you know, sort of some of the best practices like what you've seen really big companies do. Because like the reality is, as much as there are problems with big organizations, the reality is that they build products and make a lot of money. Like it works. <laughs> like there's something about it that works, right? So I think if you ex- extract uh, some of the best the the best pieces of being in a, in a large organization and try and transplant some of that into a smaller organization, a very key examples are how you present idea, right? Like how do you in a very structured way, build a case towards why you should be building X versus Y. Like it's little things like that, that I think in sometimes when you're in a small company that you're just so used to just doing things mm. without being as deliberate. I think being in a big company sort of helps coach you in some of the more structured ways of thinking. Yep. Yep. But the flip side is also true, right? Because in, in, a, in a much bigger organization, your role is a lot more defined in that sense. And, and again, you know, please feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but the experience that I had is in a much bigger company, your role is a lot more defined. Whereas in a startup or a smaller company, you tend to have to do everything. And the the, the flip side I was saying, I was, I was referring to is that you kind of don't have time to think in that sense, right? You're mm. sort of, you know, you just keep, because you, you know, the, the famous word is you don't got to hustle, right? So um, did, did you find that you were experiencing that as well, that, that having to switch to the, you know, now everything is 24 seven, you know, basically. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I think, I think the, 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 the good part about being, I guess, in a, in a B2B SaaS company is that it's not as, it's not as intense as probably more the consumer facing side of product. Mm. So there was that going for us. Yeah. Um, but uh, yes, I think the pace was a little bit different, but, Honestly, I don't think it was that hard of a change because I was looking for that. I was looking for that pace anyway. So I thought I was, you know, any improvements there was very, very uh, welcome. I, mm. I, I absolutely love that part. Of it. Wow. That, yeah, I, I agree. So, so just quick question, even, even before we hit to the end of the, the interview, but I, I thought I'd ask it now, right? So if you had a chance now to go back and work for one of these enterprise level companies versus, you know, working in a startup, which, which would you feel more affinity with now at this point of your career? Mm, somewhere in between, I think, <laughs> where I am now. You know, like, I, I think, um, so here's my belief, right? Like, I, I don't believe it's one or the other. I believe mm. that as you go through life and as you go through and pick up different experiences, it's very much about what you make out of it. If I had worked at a big tech company for another five years, would have been wrong? I, I don't think so. Mm. I think I would just have picked up different things along the way. and and. And, um, and that's how I look at it. I, I guess, uh, call it opportunistic, call it uh, optimistic, but I, I really, I really do believe in that, that mm. <clears throat> any opportunity that, that, that you jump into is an opportunity for you to grow in, in a tangent that you may not have thought about before. Very nice. That, that's what you call a positive growth mindset. So, <laughs> yeah. And in Trade Gecko, you actually moved on from being an individual contributor to being a team lead i believe um so you yes. became the head of growth um and it was fairly uh, fairly quick transition as well uh, about mm-hmm. a year and then you moved into that so was that where you became a sort of a people manager as well yeah so 
you know, I had a, a few different roles at Trade Gecko, first as a PM, then, you know, leading the growth organization, and then, and then back to being director of product. I think, you know, the thing about a startup is that it's flexible, right? Like everything, everything moves quite quickly. And, and yes, that was my first people management role. Um, and uh, what I loved about being in a startup is being able to dabble in a few different things. Right? Like you started in product and then realized that in a B2B SaaS world, your product is your growth engine. And so the extension from product to growth and, and thinking about how do you optimize the onboarding experience and the trial experience and make sure that people convert at the end of the trial. Like, uh, it's, it's, very, it's a very connected piece between product and, and, and growth. So mm. um, it, it was great to be able to dive deep into product and then jump into growth and think a lot more further up in the funnel and then eventually bringing it all back as a director of product. So mm -hmm. it, was, uh, it, was, it was really great to be able to, to sort of explore different parts of, of, of the organization and, and grow that way. So in that experience, when you moved from being an individual contributor to being, you know, a people manager in that sense, especially um, I'm kind of moving now to more your director of product role in, in trade gecko mm -hmm, in that mm -hmm. sense, you're pretty much one removed from the product, right? Because now you I remember one of the guests said it, right? Your your product is now the people, the product managers 100%. Uh, themselves. Yeah. And for you, from your experience, what was the the biggest change that you had to do in order to properly transition into that role? Yeah. You know, I think uh, I'm probably not going to be the first one to say this or experience this as a, you know, that, that was sort of my first people management role. And, and uh, the biggest mistake that people often make is still being super hands-on, right? Like I think that coming from a, uh, as, as a former PM, you, you almost always have this inclination to go, oh, I can do it better and faster. Like, I should just do it. Mm. And, and I think that, um, you know, and, and really as, as, a, as a first line manager, as a product especially, your job is to poach. And mistakes happen. And experimentation is part of the game, you know. And, and you very much have to find a way to cultivate uh, that culture where people have a safe space to, to try and fail. And if it fails, we pivot, right? And I think it's uh, and and it's that that I think uh, I I wish I had known earlier, um, but you know it's part of part of growing at the end of the day. You know? Okay, <clears throat> but I I don't think well thankfully in your case it looks like it didn't hamper your your career too much, and of course you know like like you said failure is part of learning, so I think mm -hmm. yeah that no no harm done in that sense right. So, but I suppose that if you could go back and do some things different, because um, you were saying that you know you 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 wished you'd learn this and that. What were some of the things that, what are some of the things that you would do different, um, especially transitioning into that leadership yes. role? Um, you know, that's something that, uh, that I, I find that with, uh, with the product world these days is that we can be a bit ethereal as a, as a, as a community, you know, like I think, uh, it was correct to start pushing everyone towards, you know, uh, thinking a little bit bigger, a bit more business minded, customer minded, big picture, outcome centric. Great. But I think in, in a lot of senses, uh, thinking bigger came into, into conflict with execution excellence. I think those two people were sort of saying, okay, let's focus so much on, on big picture. And I think as a, you know, uh, uh, as, as a product person back in the day, you know, I think we I, I pushed the team to think a lot more on the strategic side, which is correct. But I think that one thing I wish I focused on more is building systems that help the team build routines to execute a lot better. Um, because I think at the end of the day, you can have as much strategy as you want, even if the direction is correct, if you don't execute well enough, so what, like it, it's not, rubber's not going to meet the road, right? Yeah. 
yeah, that's that's very true. Wow, thanks thanks for sharing that. That's really um very candid um um in your assessment. Um, so yeah, okay. And your team in Trade Gecko, how how big was it by the time you left uh, Trade Gecko? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't. We were a very lean team. I think we had like uh, four or five people in, in, in product mm-hmm. uh, and and uh, data at the time. Uh, and uh, yeah, it was super lean. I, you know, think, thinking back, I think uh, we were running we were running uh, uh, a lot of things uh, with a, with a very very small team. Yeah. And was the did you have a UX team as well in in Trigeco under yourself? Yeah, I, I had a great counterpart, uh, which was uh, our our uh, uh, design director, uh, mm. who we I worked with very very closely uh, on, on on that side of things. Yeah. Okay, okay, so great. So this is this is where I can jump back in to what I talked about earlier in in, in the session about you know UX versus or not versus or UX and product. So in, in mm. the case where, you know, there's a director of product and there is a head of, you know, design or some equivalent mm-hmm. of, of a peer in that sense, um, how do you make that work well in that sense? In, instead, oh, of yes. it, yeah, instead of it being a clash of, you know, uh, uh, who shouts the loudest in that sense, but to really mm-hmm. come together to find out what's best for our customers, what's best for our users. I have a few um, thoughts here. Um, one is I think a lot of it is structural, right? Like if if it becomes a handover experience where design does something and hands over the product, I think it lends itself to a lot more conflict mm. because design does its thing, doesn't talk to product, and the product says, ah, what 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 is this? I don't agree with this information. Like and and I would argue that it's the same relationship with engineering, right? Like you in a world where product is product things and hands over to engineering is very detrimental to 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 actually collaboration. I think that when when you have a very, very strong head of product, very, very strong head of design, very strong head of engineering, I think that the key here is to make sure that they're solving problems together. Because mm-hmm. as you're validating ideas, as you're going and figuring out solutions, the reality is that each of these aspects brings something to the table, even early days. I, I think people who say that, ah, well. Let's leave engineering till later because they'll they'll scope it out later once we mm. figure out what we want to build. I don't think that's actually correct because I think engineering has a lot to bring to the table really early on yes. because the concept of what's possible, you know, and, and and remember these these are also the people who are really close to building the product and understand understands the the possibilities, the art of what's possible, the art of what, what new technologies can bring. I think that is so powerful and so underutilized in organizations yeah. that have engineering really far apart from product, really far yeah. apart from design. Mm. Right. Yeah, but the, 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 the sort of problem with that is, you know, a lot of people always say that, you know, you're wasting engineering time, right? That's, I, I mean, sure. I've experienced it and I've heard it from other people before, and I'm sure you've heard that as well, right? Where yeah. they say, oh, but don't, don't waste the engineer's time, you know, go validate first, go, go figure it out and then pass it to them. And I've always felt that, nah, that, that shouldn't be the way, right? You want to bring them in as, as early as possible. Um, so, yeah. And, and I think the metric you, we're looking for here is waste, is rework, right? Like, I think that, um, that, that when you involve engineers and design early enough, you prevent rework. Because I think what happens a lot of times is through conflict, and this is the stuff that you don't track, through conflict, you go back and you redo things again. Like that, even if you waste an hour of time, like that already justifies why you guys should have sat together really early on to just align on what we want to build, right? Mm. I think that's a bit... You know, yeah. I think, um, yeah. So, you know, I think the the thing to be co- to to fight against, though, 
is context shifting. I think that's the challenge. The challenge is engineers need deep work and deep time to, to work yes. on what they work on. But if mm-hmm. they have three separate meetings, you know, in the day that that's completely fragments their day and they don't have time to do deep work, I think that's the problem. I think mm-hmm. that's the problem that we really need to solve. Mm-hmm. Okay. <clears throat> okay. Now, now coming back to, to sort of, you know, this, this sort of uh, working together to solve problems, you know, between, you know, now, now if you said it, you know, design product and um, engineering as well. Now, in your experience, how would you ensure that we're not doing it as in, you know, decision by committee or by consensus in that sense? Because that's the other danger of it, right? When you bring more people together, you don't want to end up compromising on what the best solution is yep. or what we think it is. I think, I think, it's, um, I think it lends itself from mutual respect of what you're best at. You know, I think that, for example, at, at Talabat, uh, we recognize that there are very, very strong opinions, you know, and, 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 and in a good way, right? I think heated discussions happen, but we also sort of lean on each other's expertise uh, mm-hmm. to, 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 to drive some of the key decisions, right? Product to drive scoping and what to be built in the direction that we're taking, design to figure out how it should look. I defer to, to, to our design team to make those decisions and engineering. You know, I may have an opinion, but it's an opinion, right? Like, mm. I think having clear demarcations of who calls what shots is really important. Um, and I think that um, it starts with mutual respect. Like, you have to truly believe that your counterpart is, is really the best step at, at what they're doing. And if not, I think you have a bigger problem that you need to solve. Mm. Okay. Okay. Yep. Very well said. Very well said. Um, okay. And so now let's move on to the next part of your journey. Because from, from Trade Gecko, you then went to Dubai. Dubai, um, yeah. Yes. How, how did that happen? Yeah. So the story here is um, is quite a long one. Uh, but a few years ago, I spoke at Tech in Asia. Uh, in Tech in Asia, I, I did a session about sort of the, the, the principles of product management and, and going through some of the key pillars that I thought were important. And um, in the crowd uh, is this guy. His name is uh, Dominic. A very good friend today. Uh, Dominic um, is uh, an advisor. Uh, he's based out of the UK, but he was advising startups in Singapore. He's advising startups in Dubai, and uh, at the time, um, you know, I was also teaching product. I was teaching in General Assembly. Mm. Uh, a good friend of mine, a good friend uh, Frankie, and I started a, a consulting company at the time, and as well. And and in that time. Uh, I was introduced to uh, a company in, in, in Dubai called Property Finder. And what they wanted to do was they wanted to build that truly product organization, uh, you know, with design, with engineering, working a little bit closer together, introducing OKRs, introducing experimentation. And, um, and they were my, my first and last consulting client. You know, so <laughs> I, 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 uh, what worked out really well is, uh, you know, in the Middle East, the, the weekend is, is Friday, Saturday. So I actually, because it's offset, I could actually come and consult without even taking a off. So it was quite nice. And so I, I flew here. I, I checked out Dubai. I, I, we consulted for Property Finder for a little while, for a few days. And, um, and a couple months later, uh, they sort of reached out to say, hey, like, would you be interested to come in and, and, and build a product organization? And so how, uh, how um, so Dominic introduced me to Property Finder and Property Finder at some point after, uh, you know, I want to say, and, and when I came to Dubai, one observation I had was the same feeling when I moved to Singapore, uh, when I went over first 
sort of went to Singapore a bit more often in 2012 and 2013 about how I felt like the tech scene was still very early days, still mm. very much evolved. I felt the same way about Dubai and, and the Middle East, right? I, I think that the, 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 the big surge and the big amount of tech growth that we saw in, in Southeast Asia over the last five, six, seven years, I'm seeing a lot of those elements in, in, in Dubai and in the Middle East right now, right? You got to think about just the sheer population growth in the Middle East, right? Like yeah. you just, you just look at Egypt as a country, you know, 100 million people, you know, leapfrogging in technology the same way Indonesia is, right? Like, yeah. like people's first devices is a mobile phone, yes. right? Everything is mobile first. Like how do we think about that? And, and it's so untapped. It's so untapped, you know? Over the last two years, I've been fortunate enough to be able to travel to Cairo a few times. We will go to, 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 to uh, Riyadh uh, in Saudi, uh, to be able to sort of be involved in sort of the different, different growth markets here in the Middle East. I tell you, like, it's, it's really early days. And, and for me, being able to sort of be the, the sort of pioneer generation, if you want to call it, in, in product and tech, I think it's super exciting. It's, it's exciting because uh, I think that there are, there are some real problems to be solved in a part of the world where uh, people are craving for, for technologies to solve some of their daily, daily woes. For sure. Mm-hmm. Wow, very nice. And actually, from there, you you continued on in in Dubai and you joined um, Talabat, right? Yes. Um, which is um, owned by Delivery Delivery Hero. Hero. Okay. So, so the, same, the same parent company as Food Panda. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, the the question was because in Property Finder you were a VP, um, and now in Talabat you are now the the CPO, the chief product officer, which is, again, you know, a much bigger um, responsibility, a much bigger role. And again, so the, the question I'll, I'll pose to you again is, what, you know, what changes when you move again? Now you are yeah. at, the, at, the, at that level. Yeah, I think um, it's a big change in terms of team size, right? Like I think Property Finder as a whole, you know, we had 10 or 15 people in product and design. Um, I think, in Talabat, I think we're almost at 40 people in, in, in product design and, and, and product analytics, right? which, is, which is getting quite big. And as the organization scales, A, it's super exciting to be, to be clear. But B, at the same time, you, you know, I think you mentioned this already, you're further and further away from, from the end customer. Yes. So you have to really find ways to, to, to still be close to the problems because mm. if the, the moment you lose your finger on the pulse, you'll start making some really bad decisions, I think, yeah. right? So I think for me, it's, you know, in, 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 in good to great, right? Right people uh, on the bus, then the right people in the right seats. And then after that, making sure that they're focusing on the right problems and then making mm-hmm. sure that they have the right routines in place. I think setting up the team in, in, in that order, I think is really important uh, once, you, once you get right, then, then being able to get this machine up and running yeah. and coming. So, um, you know, I think uh, the what I'm really happy about today is I think we've hired some really, really great leaders. I think it's really important um, if you, if you know, as a CPO, you, you need to be able to trust that your 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 set of VPs and directors are, are really, really good at what they do uh, because they are driving some big strategic decisions that, that you need to fully empower and trust. Because otherwise, you'll be you'll be uh, micromanaging in a in a very, very uh, bad way. Mm-hmm. So then you bring up a good question because uh, the question I want to ask you is how do you keep close to the product 
and walk mm. that fine line of not micromanaging um, in, in that sense because you know um, th- that's usually I don't know again from my experience that's usually the big line that you want, don't want to cross right you want to be stay close but you don't want to end up micromanaging as well or telling people what to do you want like you said you want to give them the space you want to give them the time yeah mm-hmm. I think the reality is um, I think what I've come to terms with is I'm almost always not the solution provider anymore. Like I, I, I'm not the right person to provide an answer anymore, right? Mm-hmm. Like pretty much every other person in the product organization has probably thought about a problem space deeper than I have. And that's okay. I'm okay with that. Maybe there's some greenfield areas that I've given a bit more thought in, but like for most of the problems, 95% of the problems, someone has given it a little bit more thought, right? Yeah. And if I respect that and respect that expertise, then my job is to flag things when I see it. Right. Like mm. for me, what it is is I need to be really close to all the things that if like if I feel like the team is not looking at numbers close enough, I'll I'll keep an extra close eye because well I need to know, right? Like mm. I have a I have a big screen in my office that I flash, you know, especially numbers of, of new projects that we're running. Like the dashboard is on whole day. Yeah. Right. Like I want to see the number of orders that are coming through for a specific idea that we're running. Because I want to be really close and and use the numbers to, to give me a bit of a sense of whether things are going well or not, right? And if things are not going well, well, I don't have the answers, but I, I am happy to sort of flag with the team, have a discussion with the team and help, you know, be a thought partner with the team. Um, but I absolutely cannot be in a place where I'm coming up with the solutions for the team because if, if, if I'm the one coming up with solutions, I think something is wrong. Can I help reorient the team? Can I help the team reprioritize? Can I help a team decide on what are the biggest problems to be solved? Absolutely. I think that's yeah. a role of, of leadership. I think that, uh, arguably, this is another contrarian thing to say. I think a lot of modern product organizations uh, sort of delegate prioritization too far down in the organization that it ends up ha- you end up having a lot of squads and, and parts of the organization that aren't rowing the same direction. And I think mm-hmm. that as a leader, your job is to make sure that all of the different components are built so that they're they're aligned and building the same story. Okay. Yep. Yep. Very well said. And um, I wanted to sort of dive a little bit deeper into something that you mentioned when you said you joined Property Finder, which was that the scene in in Dubai was um, pretty much like what Singapore was, you know, in 2012, 2013. How would you describe the product scene in Dubai right now? Yeah, I think the good part about Dubai is that it's super, super international. Like I used to think that, you know, uh, Singapore was 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 very expat friendly, and then I realized I came to Dubai. I'm like, wow, oh, okay, eighty percent of the population is expat. Okay, it's different. Here. <laughs> what 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 I love about that is I think the 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 the, the diversity in the the teams in terms of, in in product and, and, and tech and design is really amazing. You know, the the number of nationalities that we have in the team really really cool. I think that that lends itself to some really interesting opportunity. Um, but I would say that the scene here is a diverse, but B, uh, I, I still think it's like the, the, the scene as a whole hasn't failed enough, hasn't experimented enough, hasn't, hasn't made its fair share of mistakes to, for, for the great ideas to surface. Right? I think that there's a lot of capital. Don't mm-hmm. disagree with that. I think there's a lot of money one way or another being, being funded, right? Traditional, uh, businesses, real estate developers, this, that, who are putting a lot of money into the product sector. Great. I think that there's a lot coming into the ecosystem, which allows for really great hires as well. Like, I think that if you look at the hiring that's being done in the region, like 
there are people moving in from you know from Europe from Singapore into into the scene here in, in the UAE and calling the Middle East, which is really exciting. Um, but I think it's the maturity of, of the, the skill set, maturity of the way of thinking around experimentation and the product mindset that mm. I think still has a way to go. Uh, but what I'm sort of very passionate in building over the next two years is uh, next couple of years is uh, is that foundation in this team so that we become that example of that product-led organization that is really big on experimentation, being data-driven, close to the customer. Uh, so yeah, so working working on that. It's a work in progress right now. Okay, okay, very nice. Um, and also, um, having moved from you know because you grew up pretty much as a global you know citizen of the world, and then you came back to Southeast Asia, and then now you're in Dubai. Um, especially from a Dubai perspective, um, how different is it from a um, working experience? So for so maybe maybe I can mm. try to 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 sort of put it down a, a bit more specific because obviously as a product leader in wherever you are, there are obviously cultural differences, you know, things that you need to sort of overcome or things that you have yes. to adapt to. So from your experience, what was it that you needed to do when you moved to Dubai in order for you to succeed in a product role or in your product leadership role? I think, um, you know, the thing about having worked in very big, arguably Western organizations, right? Whether it's even arguably, you know, I think in, in Singapore working in a, a B2B SaaS company predominantly for the Western audience is very different. You make certain assumptions about people's uh, backgrounds and competencies and skills. And, and I think you just have to throw a lot of that out the window when, when, you, when, you, when you come to the Middle East. And, and I think it's, you know, to give you a very simple example, when I moved to Property Finder, one thing that I was really shocked by is the percentage of traffic of, of, of my product that was mobile as opposed to desktop. Like it's crazy to think about, right? That when people are searching for property, like 80% of people in parts of the Middle East are doing it on their phone. Like it's, it's probably not the most conducive way for you to look at property, but you do. And why? Because that's your primary device. That's your primary device. This is how you were enabled, right? As in, in, into the internet era. And, and I think that it just ha- you just had to challenge yourself a little bit to, to just not, not take things at face value and, and, and really challenge your assumptions, right? Mm-hmm. To give you another example, we saw a big male-to-female uh, gap on what devices they use to search for property. Why? Because we realized that, um, especially in, in countries like Saudi, you may have more men who are in the workforce. As a result, they're the ones using desktops to search for property, whereas women were using their phones because mm-hmm. they're out and about. So. You know, it's it's these assumptions and cultural nuances that you don't really, uh, you know, historically, at least I, I didn't really think about. Mm. Um, and, and it really forces you to say, oh, okay, like, A, don't take it as a problem. Get it the wild. Like, that, that's, a, that's a really cool observation that we can do something about. Okay. And, and what about the, the cultural differences from being a product leader, leading a product team yes. in, 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 in a place like Dubai? You know, the interesting thing, I found is, you know, a lot of people say, uh, you know, working in Singapore, people have really good work ethic. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Um, but the really cool part about Dubai especially is that because everyone has left their homes, wherever their home may be, Europe or Asia or whatever, mm. to move to Dubai, everyone has moved to Dubai with a bit of that, it's not the American dream, I guess, but the Middle Eastern dream, whatever you want to call it. But <laughs> But people move to Dubai because they, they really want to accelerate their career. They want to work really hard. And 
And, and what I find is that the work ethic in, in at least the organizations I've been fortunate to be part of has been fantastic. Like people work really, really hard to, to solve some really tough problems. And, and, and the good part is, you know, uh, because we've been able to attract some really good talent, arguably the tax-free status and things like that helps a lot, you mm -hmm. know, for people to move over to, to Dubai. Um, because we've been able to attract some really good people, I think that that's a very good flywheel, you know, very motivated people who are very, very brilliant, who, 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 who want to make a difference in this part of the world. Uh, it's been great to be able to be part of teams that, that, that have that kind of mindset. And, and uh, so I think culturally, what I found was really good work ethic, you know, from the organizations that I've been part of. Um, yeah, so that, 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 that was my personal experience here in the Middle East. Okay, very nice. Um, now, switching gears uh, a little bit, um, looking at, you know, all the companies that you've been in, the roles that you've been in, especially from an industry, looking at the industries that you've been in, it's been very varied, right? You've been in real estate, you know, food, food delivery, you know, um, developer facing a product. And mm -hmm. so this brings me to a question which is almost an eternal debate in that sense, right? As a product manager, should you be a specialist or should you be a generalist? Um, and I'll give you a bit of context, right? So I think a couple of weeks back, if I remember correctly, I was actually thinking about this. And so I, I put up this poll in, in LinkedIn, you know, should, should product managers be, you know, specialists, generalists, or do whatever it takes? And from your perspective, I would like to find out as well. What, what do you think yeah. uh, about that? I absolutely believe that product people should be specialists in solving tough problems for people or for customers, right? I think that if you're a strong product person uh, and, 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 and strong, not in the sense that you understand a particular industry particularly well, a particular dynamic really well, understand a, a system really well, but like strong in the sense that you you are very data curious, you, under, you understand the qualitative, the quantitative, you understand how to, to, to find the critical path to solving a problem, whether it's a customer problem or a, uh, or, or, or a business problem. I think those foundations don't go away. I think mm. those are the foundations for whatever problem you want to solve, right? Yes, sure. Some problems are more fast moving. Some problems are a little bit slower. Some problems are a little bit more customer facing. Some a little bit. Some problems are a little bit more back office. But at the end of the day, like you know, what I think product managers are specialists in is how to find the critical path in solving a problem for 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 someone, right? And if that's true, then I really do believe that product manager is probably a very very malleable skill set. Um, that being said. I think there's some merit uh, in being able to work in, in similar industries, right? Like coming from real estate, a two-sided marketplace to a food delivery company, a three-sided marketplace, there are, of course, some parallels that I've been able to draw, mm. right? But um, I don't think that it is the most important uh, thing that I look at when I hire PMs, as an example. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And, and so uh, moving along that, that, that train of thought, right? It, what advice would you have for any product manager who's trying to make the move into product leadership? Yeah, what would you? Mm. Yeah, what would you advise? <clears throat> what would you tell them? I think um, there's a couple of reasons why product leadership is hard to break into, and I think the the first one is a very practical one, which is the the ratio, right? Like, I think I think if you look at if you look at most organizations, you have I don't know. Uh, anywhere from two, three to 10x the number of engineers that you have product people. So as a result, I think that there's probably a lot more engineering leadership 
that, that comes through or design leaders that comes through than, than product leadership. I think that the product leadership opportunities are, are less. And, and I do think that, you know, that the heads of product often want to keep their teams very flat. And for the reasons that we've already discussed, which is being close to the problem and not creating too much, much hierarchy. I think that's still a correct decision. And I think that the, the reality about product leadership, though, is that the people management aspect, yes, it's important, but it's probably not the most critical. I think, I think there's a lot of mentorship and there's a lot of helping other people learn the competencies and the skills and the experimentation mindset and, and, and coaching. That is probably really important. So what I would say is that like, um, breaking into that first role is really about making sure you hone in that skill, that mentorship skill, that, 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 that ability to help an, an associate PM or a new grad PM grow through that. Mm -hmm. I think that is probably the best prep work you can do because if you can do that once, you can do that twice, you can do that three times, it will set you up to become a proper product leader because if you truly believe that being a product leader is not about you making decisions for everyone, but you helping people sort of build the, the skills to be able to make decisions on their own, then, then that's coaching and mentorship, right? And, and that arguably is probably the most uh, underdeveloped thing that I've seen a lot of, uh, in, in a, lot of a lot of new product leaders that, that, that we, need to, we need to make sure that this, this is, is, is really built and honed in. Right. Thank you. Thank you. And again, so still moving along the same vein, right? So for you, um, you're arguably at the pinnacle of a product career as in uh, you're the chief product officer. You can't possibly go higher than that within a product hierarchy in that sense. W what do you think is next for you um, in that sense? I would argue that, um, you know, yes and no, because I think that yeah, even in, 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 the, in the organization that I'm in today, I think as we scale and as we grow, as we, you know, Delivery Hero uh, being a 20 billion Euro company today, you know, when it becomes, you know, 30, 40, 50, 100 billion dollar uh, Euro company, I think it will be a very different kind of product. It'll be a very different kind of team. It'll be a very, very different kind of structure. You know, even today, you know, uh, my, my role is changing in the sense that like, you know, we're as delivery here, a lot more global in the way that we build products, right? Building services for other entities to consume. I think that kind of product management is a bit different. Mm. And, um, the reality is that title is one thing, but I think your scope will always move and your scope will always change. And so I think the exciting part is, is, is being able to take on more uh, and, and solve different kinds of problems, uh, arguably almost like people and system and organizational design problems now and at a global scale. I think it's really interesting. Um, and so for me, I, I feel like I still have a lot of runway to go in, in, in being able to truly lead a, a more global team, a, a multinational team across different sites we have for example a product uh, we, we have a product team here in dubai but we also have a product team in cairo in egypt so mm. managing that and scaling both sites up uh, this is something i'm particularly excited about okay very nice and if i were to ask you theoretically of course um you know because you you've worked in the states you've worked in singapore dubai if there was another place that you could go to right um yeah where, where do you think you, your adventure is going to take you next in product no, if, if maybe you could another maybe another continent that I haven't lived in yet, you know, could be Europe. Uh, you know, uh, let's see, could be Europe, could be Australia. Who knows? Um, you know, we we're, we're very open uh, to that. Uh, but right now, I think that we have a lot of runway left in the Middle East, and mm -hmm. we're going to stick around here for a little while longer to to really crack uh, product and tech here in the Middle East. Very nice. Um, final question on, on this uh, um, topic of, you know, ge geographical differences and things like that. 
what uh, I think it would be good to know as someone who has been very well traveled as a product manager and as a product leader, what would you advise people who are trying to break out of their shell to move into a different location uh, in that sense mm. and hone their craft? What would you say would be important for them to understand or to learn? Yeah, I think um, I think if anything, know that it's not as, as scary as you think it is. I think that moving to a new location, especially these days, you know, um, I think that with a much more shared understanding of what product and tech is, I think if, if you're joining the right company in a different location, of course, through the interview process, really assess whether the company is the right culture fit for you. If that's the case, I feel like from a work perspective, it should be a relatively easy move. Um, but just don't underestimate. I think the, the only part of your life that you need to not underestimate is <clears throat> the the things that you have to do to just uproot your life and, and move to a new place. So give yourself ample time to settle in. You know, arguably when I felt like I, when my wife and I first moved to Dubai, like the first six months was, wasn't the easiest, right? Like it, you need to make new friends, you need to settle in. Arguably that's actually the harder part. Okay. Uh, so don't, don't underestimate that part. But for the work part, if you interview in the right company and, and test for culture, um, I think that's actually not the hardest. Okay. Okay. Very nice. Thank you. Thank you. And now let's go to the final part of our show, which is um, I asked you to actually choose yeah. a song that, that would, you know, yeah, that would, you would recommend to, to the watchers, viewers, listeners of the show. Um, and you chose a very interesting uh, song and artist. So maybe you can tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, yeah. Look, I, I, I think it's more important that I share about the artist that the song. So the story mm. here is uh, the artist is Pink Martini. And uh, I, I don't know if many, many of you listeners have, have heard about them. The reason how I was exposed to them is actually quite a few years ago. I, I first heard of the music. But then more recently, I was watching Money Heist, the, mm -hmm. the, the, the Netflix series, and I was going through the soundtrack. And, and this one of, one of these songs really popped up again. And I was, ah, Pink Martini, I've heard of them before. What was, what's really cool about this band is. Um, you know they're 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 they are from Portland, you know, in the U.S. and and uh, the range of music that they that they that they span, you know, from classical to jazz to different languages. Funnily enough, like if you if you scroll through the YouTube channel, their Spotify playlist, you even find them uh, singing uh, Chinese New Year music. So <laughs> it's uh, it's it's really quite a variety, of, and I just find it a bit eccentric. Uh, find them really cool. Yeah. I find it to be really good background music, actually, to be playing when you're working. Um, mm. So if that's uh, something that you listeners want to want to take a crack at, you know, enjoy. I, I, I find that they're really cool. And is there any reason why you chose Splendor in the Grass? Uh, no, well, that's that's just one of the, the ones that I, I really like. The Just, just one of the, the, the songs that I've been listening to a lot when I'm working. So. Right, right, <laughs> right. And it has no bearing on, on why you're wearing a pink shirt today, right? I think pink, pink Martini came to I think Malaysia twice already if I'm not mistaken they performed oh, really? twice yeah, yeah. yeah. My, I've got a couple of friends who are like big fans um, I'm um, okay I listen but I'm not such a such a big fan because I think the point that you made about how eclectic the music is it's a little bit of that part that I can't really understand. Like there's some songs that I really love, and then the other ones like, okay, I, I kind of don't go. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, a bit polarizing. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So yeah, so there's some parts that you really, really like. Yeah, like like spending in the grass is fantastic. Yeah, um, almost has this, um, you know, the Carpenters type feel to it. You know, the, the, yeah, yeah, and then some absolutely. of the other songs I just cannot. So <laughs> yeah, really fantastic. Cool, really cool. 
Yeah, so folks, um, that that's the song by uh, UA, uh, Pink Martini's Splendor in the Grass. Splendor in the Grass, sorry, I'm mixing up all my words. You know, he's got a nice pink shirt on. I've got a nice pink background. So, yeah, there you go. Um, so, UA, before we end the show, do you have anything that you would like to say um, to, to anyone in the product scene, um, especially those who are listening in about product in Southeast Asia or Greater Asia? Mm-hmm. What I'll say is this: I think we are, um, you know, as as, as product people, uh, we have a responsibility more than ever to to really be empathetic to our our customers. I think that uh, you know we're in the middle of twenty twenty now. In case we watch this a few years from now, we may forget where where we're at. I think we're in the middle of a pandemic. I think that the world's going through a really tough time for one reason or another. Pandemic. Uh, and, and other cultural issues across different parts of the world. I think that we as product leaders have a responsibility to listen better, to be more empathetic, and to understand that the world is not what it used to be. Um, and we have a responsibility to shape our products and our solutions uh, to make sure that it really <clears throat> helps people solve real problems. And I think that you know it would be a shame to see a bunch of really bright product people uh, just working on things just because of you know, just because it makes the most money or just solving sort of ethereal problems when there are some real, real uh, solid challenges in the world that we need to crack. And I think that there's a real opportunity for product leaders to, to show that in this part of the world. Thank you so much for that. Um, yeah, so I just want to thank you very much for taking the time. Um, by the way, for the listeners, um, actually having this session at 8, uh, we started this session at 8 a.m., Dubai time. So Yue has had to have a really early morning um, in that sense, you know, to, to really get mentally prepped for this uh, before we start the show. So thank you so much for that. Um, I want to wish you all the best. And uh, yeah, I, I'm really hoping to hear more about your product uh, journeys and stories, hopefully the next time we meet. Thank you, Colin. Thank you for having me. All right. All right. So ladies and gentlemen, that was Yue Ang, who is currently the Chief Product Officer of Talabat in Dubai, in the UAE. Um, and it's been really interesting uh, as him being the first guest uh, to be based in Dubai. And thank you everyone for listening in. And I know that we've been going through this season of lockdowns and uncertainty, um, but please continue to stay safe and continue to stay strong. And I'll see you at our next episode. Bye-bye. <laughs>